to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is Patrick Ahrens from Robbins Kaplan. Patrick spoke to us from Minneapolis, where he is based. We discussed his career and role at the firm, how he balances a busy practice as a trial lawyer with chairing the firm's pro bono program, a new firm initiative to support survivors of domestic abuse that also promotes lawyer professional development and mentorship, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Patrick. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in. So tell us about your background and how you got to Robbins Kaplan. Absolutely. Well, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, did my undergrad at the University of Wisconsin, and then um, trekked up to the Twin Cities for law school. And I've spent my entire career at Robbins Kaplan in the Minneapolis office. So I was a summer associate in 2005 and loved it so much that I started as an associate in 2006, and I've been here ever since. So um, one of the reasons I, I came to Robbins Kaplan in the first place um, was just because of its high-stakes high trial practice and deep commitment to pro bono work and access to justice. So let's talk a little bit about your practice. How did you get interested in litigation, and do you do a lot of IP, intellectual property work? I do. I'm in the IP group. Our practice is heavily patent litigation-oriented, although I do a lot of license disputes as well. I found my way into this practice not having a science degree, which is not um, always the common course, but we have a mixture of attorneys who have science backgrounds and those that don't, and ultimately it it ends up playing pretty well in how we present cases to judges and juries. The layperson's perspective can be helpful. (laughs) Exactly. could you tell us a little bit more, just sort of a general overview of the firm and its pro bono program? Absolutely. We have a national trial firm. Uh, we have about 230 attorneys across our New York, Boston, Minneapolis, and California offices. It's a firm, uh, a, a trial boutique firm, so we focus on litigation. Um, it dates back quite a, quite a long time. It was founded in 1938 by two Jewish lawyers who couldn't actually find any jobs anywhere else in the Twin Cities because of the anti-Semitism. And from that day forward, um, we've been a law firm that is committed to representing all types of clients. So we represent individuals who are harmed by medical malpractice or other mass torts. Um, We represent small companies and and small inventors, uh, as well as Fortune 100 companies like Medtronic and Best Buy. Growing out of that founding, too, a core value of the firm has always been ensuring that everyone has access to justice and not just the the wealthy. So uh, that's kind of where our pro bono work has always uh, been an important part of of our firm. It's been important to everyone, you know, from the first year associate to the most senior partner. And that, again, as I mentioned, is one of the, the, the reasons that I was drawn to the firm in the first place. Well, thank you for sharing. That is a very interesting firm uh, origin story. So not that long ago, you became the chair of the firm's pro bono committee. Is there a story there? How did that come about? Uh, That might be a better question for someone else. Um, I'm not really sure, other than I think that uh, I've done a wide range of pro bono work over the course of my career, Um, a lot of different types of cases, always very excited about it and passionate about that type of work. And so I was presented with the opportunity to um, take over our, our pro bono um, program, and I, I jumped at it. 
So how do you balance a super busy practice litigating high stakes cases like you've talked to us about and running the pro bono program? <laughs> well, I'll let you know when I figure that out. Um, <laughs> but in reality, I can only do my job based on the support of largely two attorneys that we have um, at the firm. Chandra Kilgriff is an attorney who serves as our firm's diversity and pro bono manager. And then Samra Sharif is also an attorney who is um, dedicated to being our firm's pro bono coordinator. And so they are both invaluable to me and really essential to the success of our, our pro bono program. And um, I rely on them a lot in terms of a lot of day-to-day uh, management of our program. Um, and that's particularly so if I'm in trial or, or otherwise tried, tied up on a case that they can keep kind of the train moving while I'm, while I'm busy and then when things cool down on my end, I, I try and jump in and, and lend a hand and take care of the issues that come my way. Building a team and delegating are <laughs> seriously important skills. So absolutely. Does the firm, so if you're chair of the pro bono committee, do you have a functioning committee? We do. We have a, a committee that there's at least one representative from every one of our offices and uh, as well as other um, associates um, and partners that kind of serve as liaisons to some of the partner organizations or nonprofits that we work with most extensively. And together, we kind of oversee the the firm's collective efforts. So let's talk a little bit more detail. How do you spend your pro bono time? What what types of responsibilities or tasks or pro bono related functions do you do? Well, um, there are kind of a variety of things. So on the administrative side, I kind of, I monitor file openings. I monitor hours to see, you know, who's participating, who's not, who maybe needs a little bit of a nudge to accept the case um, and making sure that, that we have kind of a 100% participation. Certainly, we stay in constant contact with our, our referring organizations and the, the nonprofits we do work with the most. We really treat them as clients, as we would, a, you know, a billable client to make sure that we're meeting their needs and we're kind of on the front lines of any issues that, that those organizations are dealing with at any given time. Apart from sort of the administrative side of things, the nuts and bolts of, of making sure the program's going, I look always for opportunities for my own pro bono cases and, and keeping up my own pro bono practice, which I've always tried to, to focus on kind of trial-related opportunities. And so over the course of my career, I've tried felony uh, criminal defense jury trials. I've um, dug Hague Convention custody disputes as well as asylum cases. That's awesome. We'll come back to those in, in a few minutes. Um, in terms of administering the firm's pro bono program and your sort of role and oversight and direction, is there anything that you wish you could be doing more of? You know, if you just had unlimited time to both try cases and <laughs> run the pro bono program. Are there sort of pro bono, you know, when you whip out your legal pad and look at your task list as pro bono chair, are there things that you just kind of never seem to get to or wish that you could get to? There's certainly a, a long list of, of things if, if time was no issue. One area that, I, I, that we're paying attention to more of and trying to do a better job of it has to do with sort of recognizing the unsung heroes in, in our pro bono practice. And if I can just take a step back for a second, I think we have, um, have learned that kind of a positive attitude and recognition works better than shaming attorneys 
who don't do pro bono work. And so we've worked hard to really recognize the people that stand out and that are all stars in our firm um, for the pro bono cases they've handled. And it's pretty easy to recognize those attorneys, especially billable hour timekeepers that are, are making those sort of contributions. But we also recognize that our staff and our um, non-attorney professionals play an incredible role in our pro bono program. And a lot of times, I'm afraid they maybe go under the radar in terms of our recognitions. And it can be a little bit difficult to, at a at a 30,000 foot level, kind of recognize everyone that plays a key role in in our pro bono cases. So we're we're trying to do a better job of really digging in and making sure that those individuals are getting recognized um, within the firm and getting the appreciation that they deserve. So could you give us some examples of recognition, whether it's events or awards or what kind of examples do you have? We've done a variety of things. Uh, we're very fortunate to to have done very well on the American Lawyer um, recognition last year when we um, they put us forth on their list, and we're very proud of that. So um, that was something where we each office had its own kind of firm-wide or office-wide event, recognizing both attorneys and staff for uh, what was an outstanding um, year and kind of role in, in ensuring access to justice for all. But we've also then kind of tried to do that on, on an individual basis, especially for the attorneys that have distinguished themselves. So at the, the end of the year, we have a, a firm-wide uh, expectation that every attorney, uh, whether he or she is an associate, uh, partner, executive board member, what have you, every attorney contributes 50 hours of pro bono work um, each year as a minimum. And uh, we recognize not everyone has met that expectation. We do very, very well on it. But for those that are, uh, our executive board uh, made it a point to invite small groups of, of those who met their hours to um, either a happy hour or um, a small group lunch and allowed each person to kind of go around the room and tell their, their own pro bono stories from the past year which I, I attend most of them, and they're incredibly inspiring to hear everyone's story. And um, I think it's, it's a very good recognition that um, our board, our, every member of our executive board are strong believers in the, the importance of, of pro bono work, and, and that sends a message from top down. That's a great event and super replicable. So I hope people will think about adopting something like that at, at their firms. That's, that's a great way of showing recognition and appreciation. And it's it's inspiring to be the one telling your story, but it's also inspiring to, to hear other people. So it, it works both ways, I'm sure. Absolutely. So we've spoken a lot about responsibilities and tasks, but let's talk about what you enjoy about chairing the committee. What, what sort of gives you satisfaction and <laughs> makes the job a, a fun and pleasant and meaningful one for you? Well, hands down, the best part of my job is that I feel like I have an in-depth awareness of the pro bono cases that my colleagues are handling um, kind of across the firm, especially in Minneapolis, but even across all our offices. And so I, I naturally am one of the first people that gets to hear about a result on a case, and whether that's a win or a loss. You know, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, justice is a process and not just an outcome. Um, as it happens, I get to hear about a lot of successes and um, a lot of really heartwarming successes. So that that's my favorite part of the job is my colleagues do incredible, amazing work. They um, wear their hearts on their sleeves 
and I get to see that and I get to be involved in it, even if it's just kind of um, kind of overseeing the, the program. But I, I get to, to know usually before others about the excellent work that we're doing and the, the number of people that we're helping. So that is, is really the best part of my job and just seeing that my colleagues are champions for justice every day and getting to know about what each person is, is working on. I also, I really like the idea of emphasizing and focusing on process over outcomes, especially in the pro bono context, because, you know, not every case is going to be a winner, but making sure that someone was represented <laughs> and had a fair process is, is really part of the access to justice uh, mission, mandate, and, and ball game. So I think that that's an excellent way of um, capturing what a lot of this is all about. Yeah, I think especially in kind of, you know, since we do a lot of litigation and trial work on the pro bono side, we do, you know, some clinics and some transactional work, but a lot of it kind of um, mimics our, our day job. Yep. And when you think of just our adversarial system, it's a system that is set up on each side having capable lawyer representing their interest and giving them their day in court. And one of the problems, you know, that we have is that there are, are too many people who don't have the means to afford a lawyer and to represent their interests. And it is great when we get to win, as I mentioned, and, and kind of vindicate a client who especially has been wronged. But just giving them their voice in court, I think, has tremendous value for our, our social, social justice system. So I agree with you 100% there. So we talked a little bit about carrots and sticks and what works best to motivate and incentivize and encourage your lawyers to do pro bono work. What tricks do you have up your sleeve that you use to sort of encourage participation? Well, I, I think the, the, the best way to get people involved without sounding a little bit like a broken record is, is really to tell, talk about successes and talk about what my colleagues have done. And so that the the rest of um, the attorneys here get to hear their stories, hear the client's story, hear the impact that that has had. I found that that's the number one way to uh, motivate other attorneys to go say, I'm going to go out and handle a case myself. Now, with that said, um, and as I mentioned before, I've, I've not found that shaming attorneys will g- give you that much fruit. I certainly reserve the right to do so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, it's not something that, that is, is tremendously effective, at least in, in my view. I try to, to, like I said, kind of keep an eye on our roster of attorneys throughout the year and recognizing that some people are busier at, at other times than in, in different seasons. But we try and just, uh, I try and give someone a slight nudge if the year's kind of coming up and um, they're maybe a little bit low on pro bono hours. And I just try and offer them to let me know what it, wherever their interests lie and that I will do everything I can or the committee will to go find them a case that would, would be a good fit for them. So sort of that individualized approach, I think, has, has been very effective, as well as on the partner side of things, doing a lot of legwork in terms of matching partners with associates that would be kind of a good fit to handle a case together. Oh, that is actually a perfect perfect uh, setup for <laughs> for something that I wanted to talk about, which is an awesome new program that you implemented, which matches incoming new associates with partners to handle orders of protection for survivors of domestic violence. And you've 
developed the program to include mentoring and with an eye on professional development for the associates. So tell us about this program and uh, how it's how it's gone. What what was the idea behind it and how has the implementation gone? Yeah, so this was a program we kicked off last fall and I'm super excited to report about it and it's a uh, it's been a tremendous success so far. We've called it the OFP Trial Advocacy Program at Robbins Kaplan, um, OFP standing for Orders for Protection. So um, it's a, a program designed to get our new attorneys in court as soon as possible. We generally hire attorneys who want to hit the ground running and want to be in the courtroom. And so our goal was to figure out a way we could ensure that we're getting our new associates into court within a month of them um, being licensed, a licensed attorney. So we devised a program, and like you said, where we could kind of have some synergy between pro bono work, professional development, mentoring, and the like. So we, we designed a partnership with a, a nonprofit in Minneapolis-St. Paul called the Tubman Family Alliance. And they're a, a phenomenal organization that's dedicated to serving and helping survivors of domestic violence. And they came over to our firm and, and put on a training to really highlight key issues in the law and the process for obtaining an order for protection on behalf of a survivor against um, an abuser, as well as some helpful tips for representing clients that have gone through domestic abuse, and then also just some of the nuts and bolts of, of how to handle these cases, which tend to go pretty fast. Uh, you kind of get the case in the door, and in one to two weeks, you're usually trying the case in front of a, a judge in Minnesota. So uh, they kicked off kind of the training program, and then we had our our new associates team up in pairs of two, and each pair then was responsible for handling two OFP cases. And that, we found, would would allow each attorney to kind of have a a first chair or lead trial lawyer role in one case and be able to support their colleague in another. Um, And then each team was matched with one or two senior partners at the firm, with significant trial experience so that they were able to answer questions and help the associates prepare for trial and kind of cautiously uh, let them try the case while giving them some oversight and mentorship and, and constructive feedback at the end to make sure that the experience they had was a good one and that they learned from it. Like I said, it's been a tremendous success. We've helped a, a number of individuals in these OFP cases we won some, we lost some. Every case was a tremendous opportunity for our associates to get into court. Um, sometimes they were arguing, you know, objections with an attorney on the other side who'd been doing that for 10 plus years. And I'm very proud of our attorneys who stood up and represented their client as, as um, just in a phenomenal way. So, so far, it's something that has been a tremendous success. All of our attorneys got great experience on their feet in the courtroom. We helped a lot of people and something that we're looking to expand going forward. Was it a challenge to get the partners involved? No. In fact, this was an area where we had almost a waiting list of people to get involved. I found this is a great way to get partners, especially some who, who maybe have not done as much pro bono work over a year that he or she may have liked to have. Um, this is a great way for them to be involved and make a meaningful contribution um, without taking on a direct representation case at a time. So th- this was something that we had a lot of volunteers for, and it was not hard to staff at all. 
That is great to know because sometimes when we're talking to firms about setting up programs like this, they're extremely worried that they won't be able to lock in enough supervisors, right? You know, it's easy to kind of have the first years because they can tell the new associates, you know, what to do. (laughs) And they're always worried about the more senior level sort of oversight. But it's it's great to have a test case to say, no, these, these are popular projects and people will want to be involved. Yeah, I've always found that it's it's very easy to sell trials, um, and that um, may, maybe just uh, the culture of our firm. But especially in the in the OFP context, where there's not a lot of litigation that goes on, and, and the there's not that much room for settlement. Um, sometimes it occurs, but you're almost guaranteed a trial in every case. So there's just a lot of interest from the associates who are participating, as well as the senior lawyers, to really teach the newer lawyers how to try a case. What's on the horizon? Could you share sort of one or two things that are in the works? Yeah. And well, I mentioned that we're looking to expand the, the, the program, the OFP program. What we're trying to do is, is make that accessible, not just to our first year associates, but to all our associates. And so we've tried to identify three different areas of law that would lend themselves to trial work. And we're trying to create kind of mini programs around that one of them including um, redoing the, the OFP experience this spring. We have also do a, a lot of immigration work, and uh, the Center for New Americans through the University of Minnesota Law School has been a partner of ours for a while in that respect. So we're looking to partner on um, trials relating to detention hearings. And then lastly, uh, we've worked with the Neighborhood Justice Center in St. Paul, which does criminal defense work for the indigent. And that's something I've, I've handled cases referred to by them, but we're looking to expand that program as well and kind of have five slots for attorneys to kind of volunteer to go through this program as associates taking the lead on, on these trials while also having some of our, our senior trial partners participate and mentor and kind of attend the trials with the, the newer associates. So we're, that's the main thing on our plate right now is really expanding that trial skills um, program. Great. Well, we will look forward to your keeping us posted and learning how this all turns out. So I wanted to circle back to your own pro bono docket and hope that you could share with us some examples of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you. Every pro bono case I've had has been meaningful to me as both a lawyer as well as kind of my own personal development. Um, And of course, uh, had some special role with the, the client. But I guess I'd, I'd probably start with the first pro bono case I had and the, and the last pro bono case that I tried. Uh, the first case I tried was an asylum case uh, for our client, who referred to as Sophie. Um, and she came to the United States from Ethiopia. And she was an, incredibly, an incredible young woman. Um, she was about 18 when all the events transpired. But she was jailed and threatened due to her efforts supporting a political party in Ethiopia that focused on democratic values and and women's rights. And because of threats that were made to her, as well as being imprisoned for a while, she made a harrowing escape from Ethiopia and made an incredible journey throughout Africa into South America and eventually crossed the Mexico border into the United States. She was detained shortly thereafter, and she was set for a, a detention a removal proceeding in immigration court. And that's when I obtained the case just a few months out of law school through the Advocates for Human Rights. 
uh, here in Minneapolis. And it was just a privilege to be able to work with Sophie. Uh, like I said, she was an inspiration to me um, for what she'd gone through and, and for fighting for her beliefs. And over the course of a of relatively contentious trial with the government, um, and after waiting for a year after our trial, we finally were able to secure asylum for Sophie. And it's been always one of my proudest moments as a lawyer to to be able to, to get that order and, and be able to relay that information to her. And kind of in a, a slightly different context, but equally important in to me and in my practice, I most recently handled a, a Hague Convention case in federal court for a mom, for a mother of a, a small girl who had grown up basically her whole life in, in the United States. She was originally born in Mexico, and um, even though she'd been in the United States for a number of years, the father filed a petition to have this five-year-old girl return to Mexico um, pursuant to the Hague Convention. And that was a case is that was a trial that was held over um, three or four days in federal court and involved, you know, eight witnesses or so, including expert witnesses. And it was um, just exhilarating to be able to to pick up the phone and, and eventually call uh, my client and relay to her that the judge had granted our our defense is that the, the child was well settled. And so that she was not going to be removed from the environment, surrounded by her family and friends, and returned to a country that she had no memory of. And I still stay in contact with her today and, and know that her daughter is flourishing and doing a great job in school and, again, surrounded by her family and friends. So it's it's those sort of experiences that almost makes you want to quit your day job and, and just <laughs> handle, uh, handle them full time. But it is one of the best things about working at, at Robbins Kaplan is I get a to handle kind of both a, a billable practice and a pro bono practice of, of really a significant nature. Yeah, the best of both worlds. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing those. If you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about the firm's pro bono program? I'd, I'd probably just try and um, extend the day out from 24 hours to about 48 per each day. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so that um, we could just handle um, even, even more cases than we do now. Um, one of the regretful things about our, our current kind of national setup is that there are, are more people who, who need access to lawyers than, than that we can serve. So we're always constantly trying to, to figure out ways that we can be more efficient and handle more cases because the need is we're doing our part to, to meet the need, but um, there continue, continues to go unmet in, in full. So let's end with this. Patrick, who's your pro bono role model? And why? And feel free to pick more than one. <laughs> That's a really good question. The, the person I'd focus on is my colleague, Katie Barrett-Wick. And I, I name her because she's been a pro bono all-star at the firm um, her entire career. And I, I look up to her for that reason. She handles just an incredible array of uh, pro bono matters, in, in, including some of the most important and impactful cases that, that we've handled in, in our firm. Um, just last year, she litigated really a kind of a, a key case on transgender rights um, in federal court, and, and that's ongoing, just has had a, an incredible dedication to that case. She was recognized as one of the Minnesota 2016 Attorneys of the Year for her help and contribution to a self-help clinic 
which is a walk-in program designed to help self-represented litigants understand the procedures and requirements in the Minnesota Court of Appeals. And just uh, a couple of weeks ago, she obtained a, a published opinion from the Minnesota Court of Appeals on, on a cutting-edge issue about when uh, a child's name can be changed. And this would kind of grew out of a, a case involving a um, some, uh, again, we were representing a survivor of domestic violence, and um, the client wanted to change her daughter's name to no longer be associated with the husband, but to take the, the mother's last name. And there were some problems with that at the district court, um, and Katie was able to obtain a, a reversal by the, the Court of Appeals. So all in all, she's someone that is just completely devoted to pro bono work and ensuring equal justice for all. And um, I've always looked up to her for that reason. Oh, what an inspiring choice. Thank you for sharing Katie with us. That's fantastic. And Patrick, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Patrick for joining us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And please take a moment to leave an iTunes review. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. 